Brothers and sisters, hear the good news. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress that truth in unrighteousness. The ungodly suppress the truth even though God has made it evident to them. Instead of worshiping the creator, they chose to worship the creature in idolatry. This was us. But while we were still helpless, Christ died for the ungodly, demonstrating his own love toward us. While we were enemies, God reconciled us to himself through the death of his son. And through Jesus' blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God, because that which sinners so rightly deserve has been, endure, has in, been endured by him for your sake. Brothers and sisters, having truly confessed our sins, God himself promises you the forgiveness of the Father, the victory of the Son, and the glory and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Believe this and rejoice. And God's people say, Amen. God's word to us this morning begins in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12. Beginning in verse 16. Hear the word of the Lord. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a certain rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? And he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. We'll turn to chapter 16. In verse 19. Now there was a certain rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, gaily living in splendor every day. And a certain poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now it came about that the poor man died, and he was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue. For I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here, comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm, fixed in order that those who wish to come over from here to you may not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. Turn now to Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat, it, sat upon it called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. And his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems, and he is a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. 
And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in midheaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, in order that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. If you would, please turn with me to the back of your bulletin. We'll read together as a congregation Psalm 37, verses 7 through 16. Psalm 37, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's read beginning in verse 11. Do not speak against one another, brothers. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor? Come now. You who say today or tomorrow we shall go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast. You boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to the one who knows the good thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. 
Your riches have rotted, and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you, and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your field, and which has been withheld by you, cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter, and you have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it, until it gets the early and the late rains. You too be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not complain, brothers, against one another, that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brothers, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke the name of the Lord. Behold, we count those blessed who, have, who endured. And you have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. If you would pray with me. Fathers, we come again to James' epistle today. Lord, we pray that you would give us ears to hear it. We want to be hearers of your word, to know who we are, who we're called to be in our Savior Jesus, and to do it. Lord, help us to hear carefully this warning, to take encouragement from it and warning from it. Lord, we pray these things in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. So by way of reminder, you remember this passage that we read starting in chapter 4, verse 11, and going through the middle of chapter 5, we have two references to do not speak against your brothers, and it's placed in the context of the coming judge. The judge is standing right at the door. And then in the middle, we have two come now passages. And remember last week we made the observation that those passages are not specifically addressed to the brothers, like the rest of the book of James. Instead, it's come now you. Come now you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. In our passage today, come now you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. We need to remember that these two passages are placed in this context. The judge is at the door and the primary admonition for us for the readers of the book of James, for the, the early church that's been dispersed out of Jerusalem, comes in verse 7. The primary admonition is to listen, and he says, be patient, therefore. So when we read this, come now you who are rich, weep and howl for your miseries, but then the conclusion is, therefore be patient, brothers, until the coming of the Lord... We have, to, we have to read this on at least two levels, just like the passage last week, because we're looking on at, at a warning, a prophecy written against the persecutors of the early church, but it's written to the church. And this shouldn't be all that unfamiliar to us. For those of you that, that have been reading along through Isaiah, you read through the minor prophets, it sometimes can be confusing because he switches who the prophecy is against. You read from passage to passage and all of a sudden you, you find that, that the, the new prophecy is no longer against Israel, it's against Edom or Philistia or Moab. And yet, 
it's written to the nation of Israel, and they're listening in on these warnings against all of the nations around them. And James, he prophesies in the same fashion. So he's, he's giving a warning, one that we must heed, we have to listen to, but the primary admonition out of this for those who are the persecuted, for the church dispersed abroad, is be patient for the judges at the door. Of course, there's no encouragement in that if we are acting like the rich of chapter 5, verse 1. If we find that we fall in the camp of the rich who should be weeping and howling at the coming of the Lord, there's, there's no, it doesn't make sense to say be patient Wait for the coming of the Lord because it's coming soon. Instead, we should, we should heed chapter 5, verse 1. Weep and howl, for God's right at the door. So we need to keep that in mind and, and apply it then correctly. But we cannot escape what James says in chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, as if it has no application to us either. So it won't do to abstract this and to take it into the current social revolution, although we do have to consider that. Instead, we need to think about it in the context of the book of James. Remember, if you would, that James is writing, and he writes as Jacob to the 12 tribes dispersed. So back in chapter 1, he names himself Jacob, and he writes to these 12 tribes dispersed, and they're in trouble. They've been cast out of their homes following the murder of Stephen, they're being persecuted and they're dispersed outside of Jerusalem, throughout the land, and they're suffering. And remember that what he wants the church to know, what he wants these believers to know is rejoice. Rejoice in every kind of trial, especially this kind of trial where you're cast out of your homes and be patient. Look and see what God is doing. Now we sit on the other side of history, so we have the benefit of seeing what God did in the early readers of the book of James. We can see that God cast his people out of Jerusalem and it was like a seed being sprinkled out outside of the land to grow up the kingdom of God. And so we see, at least in part, the fullness of God's plan in bringing about suffering in these readers and it ought to doubly then act as encouragement to us when God brings similar trials into our midst. All right, so our plan today, we're going to cover then James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. We're first going to read through that and make some observations cursorily and then ask some questions about the context of these verses. So specifically, what is he talking about when he prophesies against them that the Lord is at hand in the context of the book of James? So what is the timing of this? What are we supposed to look for? And then who is he talking to? Who are the rich? Because is, is it just mean if you have excess money that you fall under condemnation in James 1, James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6? And in our day, that's exactly how this passage is interpreted. If you're a one percenter, you're guilty. Of course, we know better. We know better than that, that God judges, and he judges for a reason. So we need to look for that in the text. So again, looking now specifically at James chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. And this should sound familiar to us. This is the same language that we read in Isaiah. We, we can read it in Isaiah chapter 13. We can read it in Isaiah 15 and Isaiah 21. 
We can read it in almost every, of the prophe- every one of the prophecies in, against the nations. He tells them, weep. Cry your eyes out because God is coming and he's coming in judgment and so you should mourn. But it's worth noting that these words for weep and howl, come now you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. He just admonished the brothers to do something very similar but in a different context. So he said in James chapter 4, verse 6, writing to the church which has conflicts among them, he says, God gives a greater grace. He's opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable, mourn, and weep. Now, two of those words have the, have the same roots. And so there's this idea embedded here in, in the church. Conflict arise, has arisen among you, and it looks like the kind of conflict, the kind of wicked motives that their very persecutors have used against them. And so he's admonishing the brotherhood, weep and mourn, repent, because God is always opposed to the proud, and he always protects and gives grace to the humble. And so judge yourself right now. Come before God, repent of your sins, be miserable, weep and mourn, But now in James chapter 5, verse 1, he's talking to the rich, and it seems as though these are the unrepentant rich. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. So God is standing at the door. Judgment is imminent. And he says of these riches, verse 2, your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust is a witness against you, and it will consume your flesh like fires. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. So in these two verses, he looks at the riches, and he makes some observations. Your riches have rotted. I come on both sides from a stock of trash treasuring gathering people. You may look down upon us for that. But there can be an inclination then to gather a little too much. Like the nation of Israel gathered the manna and they they gathered more. And what happened to it? it? It rotted. Riches can be like that. So just on the surface we can make this observation that riches, they sit and they're stagnant and they do nothing except for rot. And we're going to look at the, the, the Old Testament context of, of these words in just a minute. But, but first, I want to just quickly walk through the logic of the text. So your riches have rotted. And then similarly, your garments have become moth-eaten. So if you have more than one pair of clothes, that's why I wear the same thing every Sunday. So that my garments don't become moth-eaten. Because they sit in the closet, and what happens to them? Well, if, if you have a nice... A nice air-conditioned home and everything's wonderful. Maybe they're preserved. But in that day and time, they sit and they're stagnant and the moths eat them and they're worthless. And so you may collect for yourself a hundred pairs of garments. You may be fantastically wealthy, but it does you no good because you can't wear them and the moths come, eat, and destroy. Similarly, your gold and your silver, they rust. Now, if you're a metallurgist, you know that gold and silver don't rust. In fact, that's why they're prized. 
because they're inert, they're noble metals, and they don't gather the, the kind of layer upon them that destroys their value. In our day and age, they're highly valued because we need them to make all of our phones operate. You need that high conductivity in order to pack everything smaller and smaller, and so their value keeps going up and up. But James says, your gold and your silver, they rust. And so even the things that we count on, the riches that, 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 that we say, well, they could never rust, it's not like clothes, we know they become moth-eaten, and other forms of riches that inflation comes in and steals away in the night, that's what happens now. Gold and silver, well, they, they rust. And so you have this stockpile, and James says this stockpile will be a witness against you. We're going to come back to, back to this idea, but here just on the surface, that excess riches, the ones that you, you can use for no good, they stand and they act as a witness. They cry out to God against the rich. And we'll have to look at exactly what they're crying out. But then he says, not only are they witnesses against you, but they consume you. So your very riches that do nothing for you, the ones that we see and say, well, this will save me in the last days, as we read of the farmer whose fields were doing well. He built the extra storehouses. He said, now I can finally relax. All will be well. And that very night, God said, you fool. Your life will be demanded of you. Your riches will consume your flesh like fire. And, and we can easily see on the surface how God allows this to happen, how we're deceived into trusting in, in riches. And in, in our world, that's ex exactly what happens. You pursue riches and they consume every aspect of your life. They eat you up. But specifically here, he's looking forward to judgment, judgment that, that can come either contextually in, in life, but here in James... That judgment is going to creep into history and, and God is going to come and destroy the rich. So your, your riches consume your flesh like fire. And the reason is that it is in the last days that you have stored up your treasures. So his first point is, why should you weep and howl? Because your riches are rotting. They're a witness against you and they will consume you. They'll burn you up. Now, those riches are not just any riches. So verse 4, he says, Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields. The word is, is really just another word for harvested or reap. Behold, the pay of the laborers who, who harvested your fields, which has been withheld by you, cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. If you would, turn with me to Deuteronomy 24, and we'll look quickly at the laws around this, which James is referring to. So Deuteronomy 24, and reading starting in verse 6, this entire section in the case law of Deuteronomy is written about this subject of robbing, of robbing your neighbor, robbing the one who works for you. And so he says in verse 6, No one shall take a handmill or an upper millstone in pledge, for he would be taking a life in pledge. If a man is caught kidnapping any of his countrymen of the sons of Israel and he deals with him violently or sells him, then that thief shall die. So you shall purge the evil from among you. 
Be careful against an infection of leprosy that you diligently observe and do according to all that the Levitical priests shall teach you as, I've, as I have commanded them, so you shall be careful to do. Remember what Yahweh your God did to Miriam on the way as you came out of Egypt. When you make your neighbor alone of any sort, you shall not enter his house to take his pledge. You shall remain outside, and the man to whom you made the loan shall bring the pledge out to you. If he is a poor man, you shall not sleep with his pledge. When the sun goes down, you shall surely return the pledge to him that he may sleep in his cloak and bless you, and it will be righteousness for you before Yahweh your God. You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether he's one of your one of your countrymen or one of your aliens who is in your land, in your towns. You shall give him his wages on his day before the sun sets, for he is poor and sets his heart on it so that he may not cry against you to Yahweh and it becomes sin in you. Now it's this specific verse that James refers to. We find the same thing in Leviticus 19 that we've been going back repeatedly to where we describe the law of liberty, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But here it's given in a little more detail. So specifically for the poor, God commands, you shall not keep your wages from him. So when he works, when he reaps and harvests in your fields, you are to pay him before the sun sets because he's dependent on it. He's poor and it sets his, he sets his soul on it. His life is dependent on it. So if he doesn't have that money, his family doesn't eat. And so when you exert the leverage of the rich and you withhold pay, you are stealing from your neighbor, and furthermore, you're murdering your neighbor. And so in verse 15, it says, give him his wages before the sun sets, for he's poor, he sets his soul, his life on it, so that he may not cry against you to Yahweh, and it becomes sin in you. Now just to remind you, in James, James says, behold the pay of the laborers who reaped in your fields, which has been withheld by you, cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. So the picture is this. He's saying, you rich, come now, weep and howl, for God is at the door, and weep and howl, because this is where you obtained your riches. You oppressed the poor. You withheld wages from him, and his soul his life needed it. And specifically, his life needs it, so give it to him so that he may not cry against you. We know all the way back from Genesis chapter 4 that when the blood of the righteous is spilled on the ground, it cries out to God. And so what's going on here is there is theft. You do not love your neighbor, so you see the opportunity to take interest, to make a little extra money by withholding just overnight from the, the, the pay that belongs to the poor. And so in so doing, you murder him. His blood is spilt and his blood cries out against you. That's the picture of what James is accusing them of in James chapter 5. Weep and howl, for God is at the door. He sees the needs of the poor, and this is what you've done. You've stolen his very life from him. Now, even here on the surface, we can see that in our culture today, this is done frequently. It's done at, at, at the top levels where you withhold from the poor. Walmart's guilty of this, as are many corporations. They operate on this. So one of, one of the, the major things I have to contend with at 3M is our own policy of waiting to pay. The, 
the, the, there's always a contest of the limits. We don't want to pay for 90 days because we can make a little extra money. Now, of course, usually we're, we're not withholding that from the poor. The corporation's not doing that. But it's this idea of I can, I'm powerful, so I can, I can hang on just a little bit longer. And that money then is obtained by stealing. Now, I want to make one more observation before we depart from Deuteronomy 24. That whole section all the way to 22 is around this idea of stealing from the poor. So you steal, and you can steal by withholding wages. You can steal by taking his livelihood, the handmill and pledge, so that you hold it so that he can no longer make anything. And so you've stolen his opportunity to provide for his family. You can steal from him by taking his cloak as a pledge, the very thing that he sleeps in, so that he can no longer be warm at night. But smack in the middle of this section, he says in verse 8, Be careful against an infection of leprosy, that you diligently observe to do according to all that the Levitical priests shall teach you. This sin is infectious. It's like leprosy. It, it, it marks you and it, and it spreads. And so he says, be careful. Be careful because when this sin enters into the nation, when it enters into the people, it spreads and it becomes an entire culture of stealing against the poor. And so there's justification then that abounds. So if you would turn, turn back with me then to James chapter 5. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields, which has been withheld by you, cries out against you in the outcry, their very life. The outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived luxuriously on the earth. You've led a life of wanton pleasure, and you've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. So he says, your money, your money is obtained through fraud. And you've used it in such a way as to, to flaunt your riches. You live luxuriously in the land. You've led a life of wanton pleasure. So you don't care about anything that God has called you to. Nothing as pertains to his requirements. You have no recognition that God is the one who's given you everything. So you live luxuriously in the land. You've led a life of wanton pleasure. And he says that these very riches that you hold on to, you hoard, you build barns, you store them up, they fatten you just like a calf. So you, you sit and you eat in the barn, you get fatter and fatter, and all you're doing is waiting for the day of slaughter to come. It's an encouraging passage, isn't it? <laughs> you have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. So we need to hear James. On one level, this speaks just to the rich. It doesn't mean that if we're rich, we're guilty. Instead, he explains the guilt of the rich. The pay of the laborers who mowed your field, which has been withheld by you, cries out against you. Your riches that rot in your barns, they cry out against you. They're a witness, a testament that stand and say to God, this one is guilty. Remember in James chapter 2, he said, What use is it, my brothers, if a man says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? 
If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to him, Go in peace, be warmed and be filled, yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? And so if, if the rich look at their brother and then look away and say, Be warmed and be filled, and yet do nothing, they have no compassion, no mercy, they're guilty. Okay, we'll come back to this subject, but now I want to take another run through this passage. But thinking about now who are the rich and what is the day in the context of the book of James. So he says the judge is standing right at the door. He says twice in verse 3 and then again in verse 5 that the day of the Lord is here. So it's in these last days, in this last day, that you have stored up your treasure. In verse 5, you fatten yourself, your hearts, in the day of slaughter. So the day of the Lord is at hand. The day of slaughter is here. What day is that talking about? And probably at this point, you're, you're used to the answer. In James, remember James, we can find the context in Acts chapter 6. They've been dispersed abroad. They've been cast out of Jerusalem. The Judaizers, the very ones who are persecuting them, like Saul, are traveling the highways and the byways to arrest them, to take them. They've stolen their homes and their livelihoods. And James says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, for the coming of the Lord is near. It's at hand. Now, think about those in Jerusalem, those that are left behind. They're the rich. Those that are dispersed abroad, they lost their homes. They're poor. The believers that are cast out are poor, and yet God says to them, rejoice. Rejoice because this is a good gift of God. And at the end of his book, he says, be patient. Take courage. Take heart. Establish your heart because the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now, the very thing that God did, he allowed the Judaizers to persecute them, to chase them out of Jerusalem, saved their lives. Because Jerusalem was headed for a day of slaughter. So in the early church, in the book of Acts, the church, the church is being persecuted and cast out. And meanwhile, those in Jerusalem are selling. They're selling everything and laying it at the apostles' feet because it's worthless. Jesus told them it was worthless. The judgment is coming. And so for those left behind, their riches speak out against them. They cry out against them saying, you did not listen to the Lord of Sabaoth. And now this Lord of Sabaoth, the God who commands the hosts, is coming and he's coming in judgment. And so those who left behind, their riches are a witness against them. And their very riches are the ones that consume them. Instead of fleeing to the hills as Jesus commanded them, they stay behind and they are consumed. So the last day is coming. The temple's going to be destroyed. Jerusalem is sacked. And those who were the persecutors are put to death. I think that we're going to take a few examples, but we want to look at who the rich are. So in James, if you would turn back with me just, just for a minute to James chapter 2. Remember James says, he, he warns us against having an attitude of 
partiality because there's this temptation in the midst of trouble. These brothers were cast out, and there's a temptation to pander to the very ones who cast them out, to the rich. And so he says in verse 5, Listen, my beloved brothers, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into the court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? And so the identity of the rich is found here. They're the ones who oppress you. They're the ones that are dragging you before the council. And we know who those people are from Acts chapter 6. We have a collusion between the synagogue of the freedmen and the Jews who preside over the temple. You come before the council, and the council is the one who pronounced judgment on Stephen. The council is the one who brought, who brought Saul in and the others to cast stones and to put him to death. And so it's these men who are called rich. And that gives us another, another dimension of what it means to be rich. And this isn't foreign to us. It's just not something we usually think about in the book of James. We frequently think about it in the Gospels because Jesus talks a lot about the rich. And he's speaking to the Pharisees, to the Jews. He's saying, you are the rich. And so the passages that we read this morning, let's, let's turn um, first to Matthew chapter 6. And we'll look at the Sermon on the Mount. And you recall that the Sermon on the Mount is the background for much of the book of James. I'm sure if someone did a bit of work, they could organize it according to what Jesus said here in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, Jesus tells us, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on the earth. So it's the same idea of storing up treasure. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And so Jesus, in his admonitions, he's writing this very thing. He says, there is a kingdom of the earth. And remember, he says in, in, in Matthew and in Mark and Luke, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it's near. And so he says, don't get mixed up, don't store up your treasures in what is fading away. And if you think about the nation, the temple, those who are in charge there, that's what's fading away. The temple will be destroyed. Do not store up your treasure. Don't cast your lot with those who are on the executioner's block. Don't store up your treasures on this earth. And of course, we see the full manifestation of that in, in every part of life. Do not store up your treasures on what's fading away, which is much of this world. But specifically here in Matthew, it's the Pharisees. It's the Jews who fail to repent that are going to fade away. If you cast your hopes on the temple that's going to be destroyed, if that's your treasure, it's on the chopping block. God is just about to leave. He's just about to pick up and depart. And we can read about this in uh, Jeremiah 7. Remember, he says... 
And, and Jesus quotes out of this when he goes into the temple. He says, you've made my house into a robber's den. And in Jeremiah 7, Jeremiah is chastising the people. And he says, you who say the temple, the temple, but you come to it and you treat it like a robber's lair. Take no confidence because God is just about to destroy. You will find no safety there when you treat it as a robber's den where you go out and you steal from widows and orphans. And you come back and you say, but... The temple, the temple, we're God's people. We have God's blessing. Jeremiah says no, and Jesus says no, you will not survive. Do not store up your treasure here. Instead, in verse 25, he goes on with, or we'll just keep reading from, from verse 22. The lamp of the body is, is the eye. If therefore your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? In Israel, the light was there in Jerusalem, but the light was covered. It was darkened. And so their eye was bad. They did not see. When Jesus said the kingdom of God is at hand, they could not see the truth. Their eye was not clear. He says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, he'll hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You can't have both. Now, intertwined with riches, the Jews are intertwined with riches. There's treasures in the temple. There's treasures that are spiritual treasures, and they're good. There's nothing bad about them. But the Pharisees, the, the Jews, the high priest, as we'll see in a minute, their eye is clouded, and darkness has come on the land. And so they've, they've stored up treasure in what will not last. And we'll talk about why in just a minute. But Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, For this reason I say to you, do not be anxious for your life as to what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor for your body as to what you shall put on it. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they are? And which of you, by being anxious, can add anything, a single cubit, to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Observe the lilies of the field. They grow. They do not toil or spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all of his glory did not clothe himself like one of these. But if God so arrays the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown in the furnace, will he not much more do so for you, O men of little faith? And so God encourages us as we look on and we see those persecuted in James, and we prepare ourselves for the trials that will come, know this. Know that God provides, even when it looks like our treasures are being taken away. Now he says in James chapter 5, your riches have rotted, your garments have become moth-eaten. We read that in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, but the word garments here, they're robes. Your garments have become moth-eaten. Their robes, and it's of, of the kind of robes, I think we can make this connection, that are worn by the high priest. So I read for us this morning the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And if you remember what Lazarus was dressed in, he was dressed in linen and purple. It's, it's the robes of the rich, but specifically it's the robes of the high priest. Underneath is linen, and on top of that is the robe of royalty, the robe of purple and blue in which you're arrayed in God's splendor. And yet this rich man, he didn't care about Lazarus 
dining on the scraps of his food. He didn't care about him such, to such an extent that even the dogs were licking his sores at his feet. And so there's a judgment cast on the leader of the people of Israel, on the high priest, because he has no mercy. He says, the temple, the temple, our treasure is here. Neglecting the fact that God is the one at the heart, and if God leaves the house, it's worthless. Even though it's adorned in gold and silver, and even though the robes are dressed up in purple, still the moss will come in and eat, and rust will, will destroy. I'll just point you to another few passages in which Jesus draws this connection out for us. So in Matthew chapter 25, we have the parable of the talents. Remember that God gives treasure. He gives gold. And he tells them to use it, to utilize it for his kingdom. And there's the one man who stores it up and does nothing with it. So he takes that wealth, that treasure, and he hides it away. And his judgment is acute. He says, everything you have will be taken away. And we know that in that parable, that money represents more than wealth. It doesn't represent less than wealth. God calls us to use our physical treasures for building his kingdom, to know that when he says, my kingdom is, is at hand, that's where our life is. <coughs> but it's more than that, because God gives us the gift. He gave Israel the gift of the blessing. And he told them, this blessing is for you, and who, who, you will be a blessing to the nations. And yet he came in, and he saw the temple, and he says, it's a robber's den. My house is supposed to be a house of prayer for all the nations to come in, and yet you've sequestered it. You've guarded it off and you used it as your own robber's lair, and so I'm going to destroy it. This is my house no longer because this is not who I am. I will not dwell with this people. Back in James, it says, Your gold and your silver have rusted. Remember that the, the temple is adorned with gold and silver. It's easy to place our trust there. This word rust is an uncommon word in the Bible. It's used in James twice. It's used in the Septuagint. And I, I want to flip to that passage quickly in Ezekiel 24 <clears throat> because it speaks to this same coming judgment. Although in the case of Ezekiel 24, it's already happened. So if you would read with me in Ezekiel 24, there's another parable here. And starting in verse 1. And the word of Yahweh came to me in the ninth year, in the tenth month, on the tenth of the month, saying, Son of man, write the name of the day, this very day, the king of Babylon has laid siege to Jerusalem this very day, and speak a parable to the rebellious house, and say to them, Thus says Yahweh God, Put on the pot, put it on, and pour water in it. Put it in pieces, every good piece, the thigh, the shoulder, fill it with choice bones. Take the choices of the flock and pile wood under the pot. Make it boil vigorously. Also seethe its bones in it. Therefore, thus says Yahweh God, Woe to the bloody city, to the pot in which there is rust, and whose rust has not gone out of it. Take out of it piece after piece without making a choice, for her blood is in her midst. She placed it on the bare rock. She did not pour it on the ground to cover it with dust, that it may cause wrath to come up and to take vengeance. I put her blood on the bare rock, that it may not be covered." Therefore, thus says Yahweh God, Woe to the bloody city, I shall make the pile great, heap on the wood, kindle the fire, boil the flesh well, mix in the spices, let the bones be burned, then set it empty on its coals, so that it may be hot. 
and its bronze may glow, and its filthiness may be melted in it, and its rust consumed. She's wearied me with toil, yet her great rust has, not, has gone from her. Let her rust be in the fire, and your filthiness is lewdness, because I would have cleansed you, but you are not clean. You will not be cleansed from your filthiness again until I have spent my wrath upon you. If you're not familiar with this parable, the understanding of it comes from Ezekiel chapter 11. There, the image of a pot is presented, and in that image, presented by the people, Jerusalem is the pot, and the people within it are the meat, the thighs, the bones, the good choice meat in the pot. And they're saying, Jerusalem will protect us. This is the great city. We'll be safe here, where the temple is, where God dwells. And in Ezekiel 24, Yahweh says, no, there's rust in that pot. What you see as a holy pot for God, in which, which his holy meat is cast, is contaminated. There's no justice in this land. And so instead of being protected in the pot, he says in verse 5, I'm going to take out the choices of the flock and pile the wood under the pot and make it boil vigorously. And I'm going to take out piece after piece without discrimination. So I'm going to cast out of this pot piece after piece. It's a, it's a, a prophecy of the judgment coming on Jerusalem in Ezekiel. One that happened in the past. So there's a seizures at the door of Jerusalem. They're knocking on the door. Nebuchadnezzar is just about to destroy it. And this is what he says. This pot that's full of rust will not protect you. I'm going to take out piece after piece. And I'm going to cast you outside of Jerusalem. You're going to be taken to a foreign land. Woe to you. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for your miseries will come upon you. And it's this same idea that we see in the book of James. Because there's no justice for the orphan, for the widow, because you've neglected the greater things, you tithe dill and mint, Jesus says, and yet you neglect what's greater, and you should do both. Because of these things, I'm coming in judgment. It's in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. You've placed your hope in the wrong kingdom. Behold, the pay of the laborers who harvested in your field, which has been withheld by you, cries out against you, and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. Remember that Jesus is the one who said that the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few. So this is not less than talking about economic justice, so dealing with, dealing with your neighbor and with the poor rightly, but it is also talking about those that came in that God called as harvesters and laborers in his church. And what happened? What happened to them? They were put to death. Their blood was spilt, and it cries out to God. So the apostles were martyred. They came in as harvesters in God's harvest because Israel refused to do what God called them to. They sequestered his house. They kept the nations out. And so God called, and he called out a renewed people church. And that pay has been withheld, and now their blood cries out from the ground for judgment. And so you can think about Stephen. Stephen, he said, don't judge them for this, God, but they kept on persecuting and destroying. Not that there's no hope. Saul repented, and God saved him. But their, their outcry has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. If you're not familiar with that, with that word, 
it's rooted in Hebrew, and it just means of hosts, of armies. So God, the God of armies, is going to come and judge. And he's going to come in judgment, and he's going to pull up a host of Roman armies. Just like he did in the past with the Assyrians, with the Babylonians, he brings judgment. God is a good and just God. Now, we need to remember that this is written to the persecuted church. And so this passage of judgment, which we look in on, is an encouragement to them. Be patient, because this day is coming. It's coming soon. And so don't open up your mouths. Don't take vengeance for yourselves. Don't murder. Don't follow in the footsteps of those that God has called you away from. Don't don't be just like them. Instead, wait. Be patient because the coming of the Lord is at hand. So finishing out verses 5 and 6, you've lived luxuriously on the earth. You've led a life of want and pleasure. You've fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You've condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. And so on two levels, we have this judgment, both against the Pharisees and against the, those that continue to be rich, that squander those riches, that hold them and hoard them up, that refuse to work for the kingdom that endures that steal from the poor by withholding their wages that that commit murder in order to build up their kingdom he says you have fattened your hearts for the day of slaughter all of this will cry out against you in the day of slaughter so just thinking through what that day is remember you read recently about the story of Jezebel. There was a day of slaughter for her. The dogs came and licked up her blood. But there's other days of slaughter throughout the Bible in which God comes in judgment. He wipes out entire armies and nations. We read about in Revelation 19 the day of slaughter that James is looking for. When the birds of the air will come feast and he says, I've prepared a feast for you. You'll feast on, on the bones of kings. You fatten your hearts for the day of slaughter. God is coming in judgment. And the reason he's coming is because you have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. Who is that righteous man? We can think about Stephen, but of course the righteous one. The one who was condemned and put to death by the very nation he was sent to is Jesus You've condemned and put him to death. And James says we're privileged to follow in his footsteps when we suffer, when we're cast out. See the grand plan of God. He brings salvation through that very suffering. Notice in verse 6, you've condemned and put to death a righteous man. He does not resist you. It's the word that's opposed in chapter 4, verse 6. God is opposed to the proud but he gives grace to the humble. So the, the righteous man, he's led to slaughter as Jesus. He's silent as a sheep before his shears. He does not resist you, but God is the one who stands beside. Ultimately, he will take up the outcry of the blood of the righteous. And as for Jesus, so also for us. God is just. So we need to take heart. We need to be prepared even if we don't feel like we're suffering right now in this way. God acts. 
He acts like He did in Acts. He saves His people, His church. He gives us reprieve through suffering. But when it comes, be patient, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now, when we read these verses, it's written here in the book of James to the brothers who are dispersed, both so they can be patient and so that they do not get confused. Do not become like the rich. And for us here at McKinney Bible Church, that, that means that God calls us to not sequester His kingdom, to not hide it in, to cover it up so that the light is extinguished and darkness comes, to not use our wealth purely for wanton pleasure and luxurious living, to not steal from those around us by refusing to proclaim the majesty and the glory of God in word and in deed. We can be tempted at times to exchange one moth-eaten garment for another one, to become just like the Pharisees. You can change what the garment looks like. And so we're seeing that in front of us. We're changing, we're changing a garment in which 40 years ago greed was, was pronounced good and more overtly. But now today it's pronounced bad, but it's under the guise, under the, the covetousness is just right under the door. It's just a different looking garment. James says to us, cast off that kind of garment. Put your hope and your trust in God, not in garments, gold or silver, but in the kingdom, the enduring kingdom of God. If you would pray with me. Father, we come before you as your people. And Lord, we, we need you. We need to hear from you. We need the forgiveness that you gave us this morning to cleanse us, to make us clean. We don't want to be a rusty pot that brings about your judgment. And so, Lord, I pray that you would purify us. Help us, help us to, to be used in the mission that you've given us, the commission that you've given us, to be a house of prayer for the nations, to welcome in those that need you to use our wealth and possessions, to use the treasure of the knowledge that you've given us, the treasure that we have sitting in front of us because we are welcomed into the house of God to use that and to open up the door so that all the world can see this is, this is who you are. Lord, help us to be a light, a city set on a hill. And Lord, help us to be patient. We pray these things in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.